We're just coming back to the one of the little uh, models that I presented <coughs> beginning the retreat. A three simple three stage model for the process. Pay attention. Meet what arises in the present. Include it all. And in, in that particular order, so you, know, you can't really include things unless you can be attentive. Because what happens is you get overwhelmed if you if you can't sustain a sense of clarity and um, being with it. If you just get swamped, then that you know the first feature of being able to be attentive gets lost. We get reactive instead. So it's just sometimes you can't really include everything because you just can't manage that <laughs> limitations. Yeah. And of course, we all have the limitations in terms of, of how much of the universe we can cover. <laughs> but essentially, you want to be able to include all the stuff that makes you tick and makes you buzz and makes you hop. You know, you know that stuff's imprinted on your nerve circuits, circuitry, and that's 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 the bit. But of course, sometimes it's just too reactive. So you just have to first of all pay attention, and then what what can you meet within that that parameter? Yeah. Being attentive, and sometimes things haven't arisen yet, so you can't really meet them until they arise. Issues and topics in your life haven't actually formed, come into form yet. But meet what arises, and then as you meet it, very, very skillful practice that only comes from having established attention is the ability to be with rather than in it, be with it rather than in it. It's another way of saying meet it, be with it rather than being in it. <laughs> So when we're in it, we identify with it. There's a, a sense of a, a overwhelm of some kind. We, we, there's an involvement in it. Our energies get absorbed into it. And we tend to um, then um, create, you know, not, not just get more obsessed with something. We're not we're getting in it. This is, so it's a very helpful little thing to remember to be with something without being in it. And particularly this is very much with the, the feeling and perception aggregate. So feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's a whole sort of uh, glow around those. Isn't there? Charge. Uh, you know, that kind of pins you one way or another. Pleasant, the unpleasant. The basic ones are neutral. Sometimes we just get, uh, it's, it's a intermediary, and you know, we can feel bored by the neutral, and it becomes unpleasant. Or we can feel calm by the neutral, and it becomes pleasant. <laughs> so it can swing either way depending on 
on uh, where you're coming from, you know, what your, whether your attention is really primed. And if, you, if your attention is primed, so you can get the sense of an awareness, that is the sense of receptivity and sensitivity, then the neutral has got this subtle, pleasant quality to it. Because it's not particularly the, the feeling itself, but the sense of being relieved from the pressure of the other feelings. Yeah. So when you come back to awareness, or the sense of just res- basic receptivity, then when you feel something intensely pleasant, there's a huge charge, and it presses it. You know, you, kind of, you know, it catches. If it's unpleasant, it presses it. It catches. You know. I mean, they travel in different directions, but essentially the same experience is being got. You know, something gets you. The pleasant or the unpleasant gets you, and for that moment you're, you're very much formed around that experience. This is why, really, for with contemplatives, the neutral is, is actually better than the pleasant. <laughs> On one level, you know, purely sensory pleasant or intellectually pleasant, because it, because the sense of being got and taken along for a ride, eventually, and it, and the end of it, you know, the pleasant sort of wanes, and oh, yeah, oh, that was nice, um, and you're slightly rocky because either you want to get the next pleasant one, or you're left with this feeling of, oh, that was kind of nice. It's a shame that's over with. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, look something else, you know. So you, it sort of throws you off balance a bit. When you're in the balance of, of awareness, which is just a sense of poise, being with, then the neutral, the feeling of release and relief that you're not being grabbed, you're not being taken anywhere. And that feels nice. Of course, that only works if you, if the, there's attention. And the awareness is, is open. You can really sense that quality of openness, sensitivity, receptivity, stillness. Because then that, yeah, that feels, feels in a way, or is sensed as calming, steady. You know, you feel comfortable with that. And it's the, you know, so then you don't want to uh, lose that. Because it gives you great flexibility and a sense of autonomy. That is, you're not in this, you're not in that. You can touch it, you can be with it, you can reflect on it, you can step back from it, because it's, you're not in it. You know? So that's what we call, the, you know, the, the, that's where the inclination to Nibbāna is of that, in that, goes in that direction towards autonomy towards not being in anything. So the first um, real uh, uh, feeling for that is called non-attachment, viveka. So that's got a nibbanic quality to it in that you know, you can witness things, things come and go, things are happening, and you've got the space to allow them to travel their own way, be what they want to be, 
and um, you know you, you can learn from them. You're not invested in them one way or another. That's viveka, non-attachment or non-involvement. Sense of some autonomy. Doesn't mean things don't happen or that you averse to things happening or you've got some view about things that shouldn't be existing. It just means they go their way and, you know. <laughs> so it can be also a very um, serene and even uh, loving quality because you, you're not asking for anything and you can allow things to, to pass through. This is really why the, the first f- function of paying attention actually is an effort. It does require you know, establishing mindfulness as a degree of application to get that going. And then the degree of effort that's needed gets less and less because as long as that mindfulness and that attention is there and awareness is unfolding. In fact, effort tends to just, more effort tends to agitate. You really want to actually just be still and serene. But you need the effort at first to establish that foundation, that that basic um, balance. Probably doing a headstand, you know, when you takes a bit of doing to get up there. When you get up there, you want to be quite still and just stay tuned into the sense of balance and uprightness. Then, in fact, you don't want to be making any more effort because you might fall over. <laughs> you know, it's silly to do so. And yet some sense of poise and supervision is needed. You know? And as we get more and more in tune and balanced, then the ability to soften, widen, you know, stay vigilant remains and yet one can increasingly allow the energies, feelings, sensations to, to move and pass through and you learn from them. So it's what we call contemplation. Yeah. And there are various words associated with that template, you establish a template, even more important in in our you know, the uh, Reference in this retreat, temp- the temple, the sacred place. You establish the sacred place. And the sacred place is a temple. The temple originally just meant um, drawing some lines on the ground and drawing a square or a circle or something on the ground. And then within that area that you defined, you'd wit- witness the movements of nature. You draw this kind of, and you witness the, some geese flew by or the leaves blew in a certain pattern or something like that. Just witness. And, but you create this, this templum within to watch that. So there's a certain heightened attention. In a way, the ground is there. It's always been there. You haven't done anything, but you just put a line around it and say, okay, watch this space. And that's an interesting way to look at contemplation. There's an effort required to establish the boundaries or the walls of the temple. And then within that, the space, which was always there already, anyway, <laughs> didn't create it. Yet now, you know, it's, it's somehow your attention is primed to that. So there's both 
a, a, an effort, a created aspect to the practice, a done uh, aspect, a definite finite thing. This requires some ground rules here, you know, some definitions, some yeses and noes. And within that, it's empty and open. And you don't want to be creating all kinds of walls and boundaries inside it because it just messes it up. <laughs> so one thing we learn really in paying attention is what are the boundaries, what's really needed? You know, how much of it is just obsessive wall building for the sake of having walls? You know, we kind of box ourselves into tighter and tighter spaces just because we like the feeling of doing something, creating some definitions and getting structured. One of the um, fundamental fetters I talked about one yesterday, which is called the personality view. Second fetter is called attachment to, or fondling actually, fondling of structures and systems. Silapataparamasa. So it's sometimes translated as rites and rituals, but it doesn't mean worshipping Vishnu or anything like that. It just it means basically anything that you're doing in a dutiful, repeated way. A system, a structure, a custom, a behavior, a technique. And you're doing it because you like the feeling, you fondle the technique. Yeah. It's called paramasa, which means to kind of fondle. There's something slightly salacious about that. <laughs> You know, you've got your little practice and you take it out and polish it and look at this. Really neat one I've got here, you know, what I do. And uh, see how intricate my little thing is, you know. It's got gadgets and interesting little nooks and crannies on it. And you can wind this bit up, it does this, you know. So you end up kind of fondling the tool rather than actually, you know, you know like fondling the knife rather than spreading the butter, you might say, you know. <laughs> So you've got to be kind of aware, this isn't just about meditation techniques. I mean, all, all of us will tend to have, um, you know, Mondays I do this, Tuesday, no, I don't do that on a Tuesday. Sundays is my, this I do this, I don't do that on Sundays. At five o'clock, got to have my tea, otherwise I'm hell to live with. I'm not attached to 7.30 in the morning, a cup of coffee, otherwise the day doesn't start, you know. And uh, not at 6.30, not at 8.30, but 7.30. Times, amazing things, aren't they? Well, these little numbers on, on dials do to us. <laughs> yeah, because of course systems and structures are useful. It's good to have a sense of hey, it's seven thirty, eight thirty, whatever it is, and yet, uh, you know, you can end up getting kind of so time bound that you. It's sort of the, the sense of security and the known that these structures create is a very attractive one. I know what I'm doing because I've got the system and the structure down. You know. And if I don't know that, I feel kind of wobbly and confused and uncertain and what's going on and tell me and what I'm supposed to be doing. You know? So this one is a fetter because it means that one really um, hasn't found that you've created the walls of the temple but you're still looking at the wall <laughs> rather than observing the space and what passes through it or you're painting the wall or you're doodling on the wall. 
And yet, walls are needed, boundaries are needed. How many? How big? I don't know. <laughs> Depends. Temples are different sizes and different shapes, aren't they? Big ones, small ones, octog- octagons, circles, triangles. But they all seem to require a kind of a um, balance. You can't just have a one-wall temple. It's got to it's be a complete thing that can enclose something. So we have in Buddhism, we have morality, meditation, wisdom. You know, that's one little way of saying what it is. You could get things like the five, the seven enlightenment factors or the, for, for meditation or the five indriyas or ten parameters or they've got all these lists of things you can use. Meditation, four foundations of mindfulness is a nice little one there. And the Buddha's pretty generous. He hands out these templates. You know, you want small ones? Okay, here we go. Big ones, <laughs> lifestyle ones, uh, samadhi ones. You know, there's all these numbers and things. And they're, they're basically temple blueprints. You know, and you, the idea is you set them up. Don't get obsessed with them. Don't, f- don't quibble and sort of find fault with other people's, you know, building projects Get inside your own and sort of see if it if it can be that that which actually allows you to meet what arises and include more because obviously the bigger the temple is, the more you can get in it. So that's that's really helpful thing to acknowledge. The most important thing is the space, of course, and the sacredness. What would we mean by this sacred thing? <laughs> well, I, I mean, two things. The walls are sacred and the space is sacred. Yeah. Sacred means it's, it's handled with clarity and it's, it has the quality of the good. Because I like to look at things in different ways to keep my myself from getting too kind of obsessed with particular structures. I was just uh, considering another little template: the good, the true, and the beautiful, which is not Buddhist. But so there you go. <laughs> but it, it, it's uh, it's another way of looking at uh, this is Platonic, but the good. Uh, so, which is a sense of morality, uh, the true a sense of accuracy, clarity, the beautiful, which is a sense of there's delight, there's joy, there's subjective presence in it. You know, it's beautiful because that's a very subjective thing, isn't it? Beauty is what I feel touched by and I feel al- made alive by. I can say, yeah, it's true. That's true, you know. Yeah, this is true, that's true. Well, that's a good thing to do. What's beautiful is really when it, it, something lights up for me, which may not happen for you, of course. So we have to find all of those good. We feel 
free in that there's a sense of that which is um, valuable not just to myself but to others. So it's a, it's a mutual thing. And true, it's not just a fantasy. It's, in other words, it's perceivable by others. And it's beautiful, which means it is very much, uh, it gives me faith, it makes me interested, it keeps me alive. You know, something special that resonates within that. So, and the good, uh, interesting enough, it was the, in the Buddha's this night of his awakening, we had these three great knowledges. And the first was the fact that uh, he could access previous existences. He began to recognize that this particular lifetime wasn't the beginning and end of it all. This was just a wave in the whole ocean of cause and effect, of currents. And this particular form he was coming into was just a wave in in that ocean. And it would subside, but the general ongoing current would continue and another wave would come up. And this process, the current, the driving current, is called the sankharas. So these are the energy forms that persist through a lifetime. We, we come in on a certain energy ticket. You know, we, we're impelled here. We're growing. There's an energy form arising. There's all kinds of psychological, emotional energy forms we pick up and follow, and all that carries on. So this is sankharas, are these energy forms, patterns and programs. Some of them are just functional, like the life program, or the, you know, some of them are more to do with um, psychological and mental qualities. And uh, the second insight he had was that this happened for everybody, and these currents, these sankharas, were generated and sustained through intention, good or bad. And, so, and these were definite realities in this cosmic realm of birth and death and sankharas. They weren't just values. It wasn't like somebody saying, I don't like that, that's bad. Or you shouldn't do that, that's bad. Or you're a good person, you're good. You know, it wasn't just somebody's opinion, which is sometimes how we can perceive it, but actually uh, a real reality, that there's a definite difference between good and bad. It's not just a matter of value, judgment, or opinion. They have different qualities to them. What we can say, and dependent upon this, the, the general current of that, then one, this wave moves on to to births that are more bountiful, fortunate, serene, enjoyable, or births that are the opposite, less enjoyable, cramped, dark, occluded. Um, And when the Buddha talked about good and bad in terms of karma, which is what these sankharas are about, intention, karma, actions that have intention with them, he said there's dark or bright. He didn't actually use good and bad. Dark, bright. Because it gives you a sense of it. You know? The dark, the occluded, the confused, or the bright. That which excludes light, clarity, radiance, and that which 
which supports light, clarity, radiance. So you kind of can sense some of this, so that you know we get a little bit edgy about good and bad because it sounds moralizing, and it sounds like somebody else is telling me how I should be, because that's often how we hear about these things. <laughs> and then somebody else says, "This is good. This is bad." So you, think, well, get off, you know, who are you? <laughs> You can't tell me what to do, you know, kind of thing. So you have to know it for yourself. Uh, so part of the, the function of a temple is to, is to really learn. Um, and very simply speaking, good has a widening effect. So when there's good action, it means, for a start, we can be very open about it, and to hide that. And it will also be that which is either beneficial or non-obstructive to other beings. And the better it is, the more benefit, the wider the span. You know. So, you know, you might say a good action might be something that includes you or two of us, or it might be something that includes all of us. And we say the more good, the more people would be in it. So we take something like not killing... And if we say that, okay, I decide I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to kill James, you know, so that's good for him. But <laughs> if I say I'm not going to kill any human beings, then that's going to be even better. If I say I'm not going to kill any animals at all, that's a wider span. So the sense of good means the bigger, the wider, the more inclusive it is, then the more good it is. And if it just comes down to I'm not going to kill myself, well, that's good, but, you know... <laughs> I mean, not kill myself, but kill other people, that's, you know, it's not that good. <laughs> you could do better, would be the comment. <laughs> so just consider that, because I've talked a lot about widening and expanding. So rather than making value judgments, say, does this action, does this, is it for my welfare, is it for other people's welfare, would it obstruct, offend, darken the lives of others? Would it not? You know? And uh, just widen the span. You know, so obviously something like ahimsa, harmlessness, when we really take that to heart, there's you know, no chipmunks, no, perhaps no, even, no rats, you know, uh, cows and you know, beings, and so you widen it and widen it and widen it. And that is considered, the wider it gets, the more that sense of the good it, it gets gooder. It's more of it. It's richer, and you feel a, a greater sense of, of um, like a radiance of being. It definitely has that effect. And the, the the dark has the opposite effect. It's the things you just don't want to, so you don't want to be conscious of. So I think if people really were able to include other beings in their awareness, the good naturally um, pertains. You know, like with killing animals. And generally people who kill animals don't really include the animal as the same as themselves. There's not a mutuality to it. They don't really consider the other creature also like me, doesn't want pain, doesn't want fear, doesn't want death. Particularly if you're doing, you know, 
for sport, for example, it's just a fast-moving object on a screen, you know, that I can, if I'm really skillful, I can shoot. And uh, that's okay. Don't recognize the fear, the terror, the pain that that creature, really take that on as the same kind of energies that run through me. If you do that, really take that on, just like me, then, you know, that widening into mutuality, you just don't, don't do that. I remember one of the nuns telling me she knew a man who worked in a, a slaughterhouse, killing cows. And it's just a job. He needed some money, it's just a job. You know, you do this, you, whatever you do, it's a pretty quick thing. You kill the, kill the animal with a bolt or a knife or something, I don't exactly want this, a fairly mechanical thing. So you just go in there, okay, right, bang, bang, na- next, bang, bang, next. And then one time he was about to do this, and he looked at it. He actually looked at this cow. The cow looked at him. A tear came out of the cow's eye as it looked at him. Suddenly it struck him, and he couldn't do it. He had to leave that particular job. Actually, that shock of recognition of the other is not just completely other there's a mutuality and so quite a lot of the time you know beings actually create the other as something that you can almost this veil of ignorance drops down doesn't it you know over people of different countries you can kind of parody them they're not the same as we are we're the good the bright the noble the free the just the democratic whatever and they're the weird perverted whatever it is you know the 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 more people can do that then the more possible it is to kill the more we say just like me they want to have kids have a happy life you know have something to eat just like me (laughs) they get angry and upset just like i do just like me, you know, they give confusion and joy and love, then it becomes much more difficult to do that. And so it's just like, what are you leaving out? Is a good reflection. And the, the, more, the less you leave out, then the wider that sphere of goodness gets to be. And so it's a real energy. It's not just the judgment, it's a real quality that... Uh, brightens the cosmos and makes it more possible for other beings, for beings to live in harmony and peace. It actually has direct effects. It's called karma. It's not just an idea. It's not just a superstition. So we kind of recognize that and say, the good has to be part of my temple. You know? And it's not just about you know, keeping one precept, five precepts, ten precepts, a hundred precepts. Who's got the most precepts, you know? My precepts are better than your precepts. I've got a favorite precept here. Is <laughs> It's just, you know, that which creates the boundary of the harmless, the, non, the non-acquisitive, the non-manipulative, the, the respectful, the things that allow beings to uh, be free from uh, one's greed, one's aversion, one's delusions, and so forth. And it's always realize it's never going to be a rule. 
the rule will just somehow encourage you to get the sense. Because you can always, with laws, you can always find some little wriggly way to get round <laughs> your human mind. But if you have the sense of what's called heriotopa, which means conscience and concern, these are called the guardians of the world. Because that sense, that sensitivity, enables harmony, it enables one to live without regret and with a sense of radiance in the world. This has to be part of one's temple. So, you know, and then when we really establish that, that sense, that sensitivity, that empathy, then, of course, when we, you know, when we meditate, it's just bringing all of us into that focus. So, the good towards myself. The non-harming. We often use the expression, beating myself up, I beat myself up over something. You know, or this kind of, what we were talking about the other night, the self-aversion. There's no room in the temple for that. If the good is there, the bright is there, this is ignoble. And and, uh, we have to clear that out. So it means paying attention to these causes of aversion and causes of hatred, violence, frustration. And widening one's awareness around that. Because all of the the, the uh, bad depends upon some kind of ignorance and not meeting things properly. So how do we meet our fears, our pains, our things that we find disagreeable, our, we have instincts towards violence? How do we meet those? And we meet the instincts towards grabbing and and, and uh, craving and lust and quite you know dem- trying to get hold of things. So the the recommendation of the Buddha very simply, is the foundation of mindfulness. One is aware of this is the mind afflicted, afflicted, by, afflicted by hatred, this is the mind afflicted by craving, this is the mind afflicted by delusion. Just with that, we're not, you know, fighting with it. We're not tangling up with it, nor are we following it. So you're standing beside that. And for, you know, myself, and I guess for most people, that's not just the philosophical detachment. It means it's actually what I've been talking about, a shift of energy. As you can really sense yourself as feeling grounded and steady. 
with this moving stuff. So you definitely have that sense of the temple is there. You know, you're in a firm place. You've got the space. You're not losing the space. Things rush around inside it, but you're not losing that. If the walls collapse, you know, then you know it's game's over, isn't it? You're then back in the hole, thrashing around with it. And kind of this is what we do. You know, we're able to bear with something, and then something catches us, and the walls fall down, and we get tangled up. And at some point, there's a, there's an ability to pause and stop and say, "Hey, wait a minute, where am I going?" You know. Because the, the root qualities of the good haven't been lost. You know, so, so as long as you have that understanding of the good, which we do have, and really act upon it and keep coming back to that, then you can always re-establish, start again, start the temple again. So the, the Buddhist attitude towards the uh, dark or the ugly or the violent or the pernicious thoughts and emotions is uh, not, you know, I'm a terrible person uh, and they shouldn't be like this or that, but more, this is not worthy of me. I'm I'm above this. He said it's like a a beautiful woman or a handsome man in his prime walking around with a dead dog hanging around her neck. (laughs) I think it's a dead dog or a dead snake or something, and you go, "What am I carrying this for?" <laughs> you know, this is not worthy of me. This doesn't. This is not beautiful. So that sense of the beautiful, you know, this is beautiful. This is this is not worthy of me. Yeah. So there's a certain sense of, you know beating yourself up for it, but saying, I'm above this. This, this does me no, this is, 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 uh, is not worthy of me. You just put it down like that. You realize you're carrying it. You just take it off. Leave it there. Yeah. So that's, that's the attitude, really, towards the, what we call the kilesa and the hindrances and so forth. You don't need to be this. You don't need to carry this around your neck. Um, you're, you're, you are other, you know, you're other than that. You are the true and the beautiful. Remember that. So just put this down. This cramps your style. <laughs> so then, that's 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 the process of how we can meet, how we can be with meet, but not get caught by. The uh, experiences, particularly the difficult experiences, the painful, the ugly ones. Of course, in the so there's an energetic requirement that you have a sense of stasis and a sense of of a, a healthy pattern that you can feel is there for you. Why you know we always come back to that very fundamental thing, we sit. And you sit and you support the body and you get the body energy to come into true and you feel grounded and you feel balanced and you don't feel tightened up. And you can start to get a sense of uh, a true and a healthy energy 
we could say it's the natural state, recollecting, of course, the natural isn't always the normal. So it can take effort to be natural, (laughs) to come out of the trance, to come out of the contracted. Ah, wow. Where have I been, you know? That, that's the, always a very useful basis. And then similarly in your mind, you set your mind up straight. As, this is what I stand for. This is what I value. This is what, at the end of the day, I want to look back on and feel happy with. I don't want this stuff. I don't want to, you know. What? <laughs> so you, you come to your senses. You the upright mind and the upright body. And they definitely have a, a certain energy to them. And from there you can be with what comes up, learn from it, contemplate it. This is not worthy of me. Or this is, this, is, this is beautiful, this is worth investigation, this is worth deepening, this, this carries some meaning for me. Particular things where you feel moved, affected, lifted, inspired. Yeah. Joyful. Ah, this is an interesting one. It's like you're watching the movements of nature, and some of it's rubbish or not useful, not worthy. Some of it is actually beautiful, furthering. So you get that way of being able to meet and allow things in that meeting place to express themselves. Some of them just seem dark and tangled, some of them you get a sense of widening, brightening radiance, light, any of these qualities. Oh, that's interesting. What happens if I turn towards that and be with that, see what it wants to say, where it it wants to go? So it's rather like that. And where they will all tend, the good will tend to go towards the wider, that which enables one to include wider and subtler spheres of being realms of being, subtler energies, subtler qualities, more refined attitudes. You see more deeply into, into areas of your psychology. You know, maybe you see little places where there is a fear or a withdrawal or uncertainty you didn't really know before or a, a, a panic that you hadn't really acknowledged before you know, or a, a sense of love that you hadn't really realized was there. You know, the need to, to express goodwill and love. That kind of, oh yeah, I need to do that. So it's a very interesting process, that. The good brings you to the true. Because when the, the, the radiance and the openness that the good provides allows things to be seen more nakedly, more in a more open way, and then they, they speak for themselves. Some of them go, and pass away. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that I think is really worth noting, that the bad or the, the dark tends to auto-destruct. Yeah. You don't get involved with it. Because it is a, it's an energy of closing down. Whereas the good opens and brightens, the, the dark closes down. Eventually it just closes itself down. 
you know, you get a kind of a, a dark mood of, of uh, I don't know, you know, aversion. You can just, you know, rather than follow the topic, which can always kind of keep adding it to it, you just go to the energy of that resisting, tightening, you know, sharpening, bristling, contracting. You know. And if you, you know, if you're open about that, then you know the very sense of that. When you're open about contractness, it just starts to dissolve. It's you know, not because of any further judgment or action upon it. They, it's rather like a, they just dissolve. They don't. They need to be fed in order to keep going. So when we get something that's irritating us, you think, you know, yesterday she didn't do the laundry like she was supposed to do. Yesterday she didn't do the laundry like she was supposed to do. Then what arises with that is this meaning of, you know, I wanted something to happen, it didn't happen, it's her fault, she's a bad person. You know, you get that going, you feel, you know, not like me, who was always wonderful and perfect on time. Is, is the unspoken bit. You know, I'd never do that. <laughs> uh, so, you think, so you get the sense of that self and other. You know, I'm a different kind of person from that. That's, that's what it comes as. And so then you feel disapproval. Once you've got that going, you know, they're definitely of another character. They're, they're lazy, depraved, useless, inconsiderate, lacking in grace, unlike me. And you feel that, uh, that kind of, then you can sort of stay with that for a while, then you can think of other things you didn't do, or other people who act like that. How, in fact, you know, is a hapless victim to all these inconsiderate, bumbling idiots around <coughs> who don't cooperate with my existence. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the most important feature of the universe right now. <laughs> So there's always food for that because actually I noticed that nothing really in the universe cooperates with my because <laughs> 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 that's the nature of self, isn't it? That self view, it's always like that. Yeah. So you can always create more and more topics for it, how I'm the victim, the oppressed, the left out, the misunderstood, the you know, so and so and so and so, and so. And you, you know, it doesn't take long. You look around, probably within a, you know, average person, maybe three or four minutes before they can get that one going. <laughs> Something, you know, your parents, your school teachers, the people person sitting next to you makes a noise when they move. Whatever it is, you know, get get something going. So there's always food for that. You just go to forget the topic for the moment. Just feel what it feels like. That kind of grinding of aversion, and realize that you you're feeling this, not the person you dislike. <laughs> They're kind of walking along happy, <laughs> doing their thing, and you're sitting there stewing, pickling in your stuff. 
the uncooperative universe continues to be uncooperative and go its own merry way. Here am I crinkling and pickling in this sense of unfair and unjust and mistreated and so forth. You know, what do you want to do this to yourself? You realize what's happening and the contraction of that. So if you take away the topic, you just go to the energy of that and the, the way that you now are feeling this and what it's doing to your mind. And also, we don't have to be this. No. If we've had reference to the good, which we all can have, and you remember that, you don't have to be this. We've all done something generous. We've all done something worthwhile. We've all done something that was gracious or harmless or forgiving. Or We've all done something like that somewhere. Why don't you just go back to that? Just kind of take that dead dog from around your neck. So there's a tendency for it to just, you don't need to take it, it just slips off. You don't need to be that anymore. It's funny how this uh, personality view can hold all this difficult stuff because there's this instinct to have personal history you know, to, you know, to feel to be distinctive to have this personal history thing going so we keep going back to that and the bits that stick there and remembering it and regurgitating it and recreating it you know, and establishing that as our temple because of the need for stability to be something. So, you know, the question sometimes we need to bear in mind with these difficult things is do you need to be this now? You think that by experiencing more Regret, fear, vengefulness, that somehow that will clear it for you? That you'll feel free of that by acting upon it? That's, there's the, there's the illusion of karma that keeps us going from one birth to the next. And follow this and you'll get to the end of it. Follow this and you'll get to the end of it. Work this out and you'll get to the end of it. Stay with this and you'll get to the end of it. And you don't. It just goes on and on and on. That's what samsara is. It's this basic piece of mythology about sankaras, about these energetic formations, that they go to somewhere where they're completed in the future, in the next moment, with another thought added to it, with another justification, another reason, another involvement added to it, you get to the end of it, and you don't. You just add more to it. So the resolution really is only in the present when you come out of that, not through aversion, but just widening, sensing the space, sensing your own sacredness, 
and it's like it loosens off. You've finished with that piece. You've finished having to burrow down into that, seeking justification or excuses or revenge or whatever it is. It's done enough. So that's that's the process. That's that's nibbana. That's the nibbanic process. So for the one who is fully entered nibbana, then they say they're completed. And you don't get to the end of karma by following it, but by witnessing it in the present moment, winding, allowing it to slip from you. Really try that with some of these, you know, pernicious mental habits, the ones that you've been with for years sometimes, and you've tried this and you put a hammerlock on it and you squashed it and you sat on it, you pleaded with it, you wrote a petition to it, you bargained with it, you told somebody else about it, you fasted for it, you prayed for it, you dug a hole and buried it. <laughs> it's still kind of popping back. <laughs> Take it into the temple. And the temple space widening, softening. Sacred quality of we don't do deals here, we don't beat things up here. This is not a marketplace, it's not, it's not a, 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 a judgment hall. So that's the quality of the sacred. And the sacred is that which releases karma. Meeting. And then being with it. The charge of it. The the push of it. And uh, including it all. So, you know, these formations carry feeling tones, they also carry big meaning tones. Meanings is perceptions, or sanya, meanings. Yeah. So that's part of it. There's the pleasant, painful push, and then there's the meaning. And sometimes, sometimes the meaning itself carries a big push. The meaning could be, you know, you are small, you are stupid, you are unworthy, you know, or it could mean something else. And those meanings are pretty difficult to swallow. This is why meeting things is not a small matter. It's a matter, a big matter, and you have to get pretty wide to include all these shadow identities that somehow one has kind of bought into, even though you don't like them. Because you haven't been able to to loosen up around them. They've been too painful to touch, too poisonous to touch, too difficult to touch, somewhere or another. Or we think, or too embarrassing to touch, (laughs) to be fully conscious of. So, there's a process there, isn't there, of being with also requires a good deal of the heart qualities 
nourishing, kindness, compassion, appreciation of the good, sense of joyfulness, and a sense of equanimity. It's just what it is. Let it be what it is. So those heart qualities, this isn't just purely some kind of technique thing. And the heart qualities are the beautiful. You know, the places where there's something that's your particular heart gift. You can't say there's no technique really for 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 loving. You can have techniques that encourage, kind of give you that reminder. But it's an energy, isn't it? It's a sense of graciousness. It's a sense of, you know, how do you put it? We all know what it is, and yet you can't say, now you will love. (laughs) This is how you do it. Take two of those and one of those, and boom, you're on your way. Now you'll be compassionate. You may seed reminders that can help to to, to bring one into that place where something arises in you mm-hmm. that reaches out, that blesses, that does not grasp or punish or demand, but actually wishes to give. This is the beautiful. It's also true, and it's also good. But sometimes it's the truest thing about us in some respects. And it's where we realize our one way in which you realize our, our beauty. So that, that is part of the temple. So sometimes even, you know, Ajahn Chah would say something is not beautiful. Is this beautiful behavior? Is it something that's gracious? Is it something that's gentle? Is it something that's got a sense of compassion or tenderness to it? So these are, you know, it can be soft, it can be quite restrained, not necessarily effusive or ebullient, but it's that that quality of heart that's so necessary. And if we get too caught in systems and structures, this is the bit that goes. This is why meditation can get so dry and retreats can get so dang boring. Now, if we just look at it purely from the sense of system, structure, technique, ring the bell, stand up, ring the bell, sit down, ring the bell, walk, ring the bell, you know, jeez. <laughs> What's the difference in a prison and a, and a meditation retreat? Huh? Hopefully, in a meditation retreat, one could be beautiful. <laughs> you know, there could be that kind of warm-heartedness, freedom from fear, freedom from blame, sense of trust and mutuality with other people, sense of sharing space with others. Not to talk, just kind of moving around, feeling, letting yourself be aware of other people in a way of just like me, you know. She aspires just like me, you know. She has difficulties just like me. She wishes for the good, you know. And it is a real sense of we're in something very beautiful together. And that to me, uplifts us and keeps us going, keeps us here. And sometimes, then, the, just the presence of the whole retreat situation 
isn't just all these irritating people zipping zippers and rustling jackets and sniffing and coughing and wheezing and shuffling. <laughs> Getting in my way. Part of the uncooperative universe that I was trying to get away from. But actually, well, this is the blessed company. <laughs> you know, when, when, my, when I go feel crumpled and distraught, I can look around and think, Oh, you know, just like me, they've got difficulties. And they're hanging in too, you know. Just like me, they've got sick parents or, you know, departed relatives. And they're here too. And just like me, they get tired and sleepy and throw, you know, nod off in the sittings. And they're there too. <laughs> just like me. You get that. Then, you, then somehow one can bear with and, and remember the beautiful. Because that's, that's, eventually we, we realize this is, this is the temple. And we're all somehow bricks in the wall of that. And the, the more, the better. Yeah. And it can include all these different characters, characteristics, karmic formations, you know, energies, physical forms, difficulties, and so forth. Bring it on. So it just really, you know, you, you kind of tune into that current rather than the current of physical feeling, mental feeling. Yeah, with all their, I can't stand this another minute, or I've really got to get like that, or can I have this more? This isn't going anywhere useful. Tune into the sacred and realize. This is not about going anywhere. It's just about coming more fully into presence. Let the rest of it go its own way. <laughs>